Welcome to Harrison Church. Thanks for joining us today and all throughout 2018. Thank you for an amazing year of worship, giving, and service to this church, community, and beyond. We look forward to spending 2019 with you. But today, enjoy the last sermon of 2018 from Pastor Kyle McCain. I have over the years learned to really embrace the uh, the seasons uh, of the Christian faith, including uh, Advent and uh, the full twelve days of Christmas. It's uh, it's too good to just do it for one day and then move on and go back uh, to our normal routine. So I pray that you will continue to be mindful of the arrival uh, of the Christ Child once again for maybe a little uh, longer than you are accustomed to. Uh, Pastor Elizabeth is away today, and uh, and I knew I was preaching today. I knew I was preaching today for weeks. And yet, uh, I was still working on my sermon in between the Alabama and the Clemson game last night, I must confess. Uh, And I stayed up too late uh, for a school night, but uh, thankfully we didn't have 8.30 service, uh, even though not everybody got the memo. Uh, And so uh, so, uh, I am uh, operating on a little less sleep than usual, but uh, I pray that you'll be blessed by uh, something that you hear uh, this morning. Uh, In our scripture lesson for today... Uh, Luke has recorded the only story of the uh, adolescent Jesus in all uh, four Gospels. And and he uses the story to conclude the birth narrative and to open the door into Jesus' ministry, his his adult ministry, if you will. And, And the 11 short verses that I'm going to read, Luke exposes a theme that he carries throughout his narrative. The temple will be the center, will be center stage for this story that he is going to tell. And that Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father is at the center of everything that he does. And so in our text today, we see a 12-year-old Jesus separated from his parents. You may be familiar with the story when he remains behind in Jerusalem while they leave for home. And upon finding him, he is neither alone nor as concerned about being separated as his parents are. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our gospel lesson from Luke, Dr. Luke. It comes to us from chapter 2. Uh, I'll begin with verse 41. Now every year his parents, that's Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And he was, when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching you for in great anxiety. 
He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. From the beginning of his writing, Luke wants us to know that Mary and Joseph are faithful to the Jewish practices and the, and the Jewish traditions. In the previous few verses, we see that uh, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. And, and when the, and the period of time were, had passed um, for Mary's purification, they returned to Jerusalem and presented Jesus in the temple... That's that scene with Simeon and, and Anna. And, and it is the custom that the first male child would be presented to the Lord. And so, and so Luke wants us to know that they are practicing Jews. That Jesus was raised in the Jewish uh, tradition. And according to Luke, Mary and Joseph went to the festival annually as is required. Now, Passover is one of three festivals that are required or pilgrimages that are required where uh, an adult male especially, but often the family would travel back to Jerusalem. And for those that that, that lived a, a great distance away, there was a special concession that was, uh, they would only be required, or I should say at least be required, to attend Passover. And so this is the occasion that we see here, that Mary and Joseph have traveled with their family and, uh, the, and the crowd to Jerusalem for Passover. But the journey itself was considered a spiritual pilgrimage. Thousands would make the trip from around the region and and head to Jerusalem for this week-long festival. And so from Nazareth, uh, it's about 65 miles on foot, and so from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it would have taken them about four or five days. And, And so as was the custom, they traveled with family and friends and neighbors and others, and they traveled in groups. And, and, and it was normal for the, the men to travel separately or at least, uh, at least lead the pack. And then the women would be later on in the pack. And the, and the kids would kind of go back and forth between the group. And so in, in that context, it's easy to see how Jesus might have gotten lost later on in our story. But they, they traveled together and they made this trip and, and, and Jerusalem sits high up on a mountain. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at where they acquired, where the king acquired the land for the, for the temple, it's up on a hill and it can be seen from everywhere for miles and miles around. And so whether you're traveling from the north to the south or from the south to the north, but you're heading to Jerusalem, you're traveling upward. It is a slow, steady climb towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards the temple that sits up on the hill for all to see. It is an ascent. And so as part of this pilgrimage and this experience heading towards Jerusalem, they would sing songs. The Psalms, the Psalter, it's, it's in our Bible. From, verses, from chapters 120 to about 134, 35, I think, there are what is called the Songs of Ascents. 
And so as the group of people are traveling to Jerusalem, preparing to meet with God for this annual festival, they sing these songs. And they have these words that help prepare them. Things like, I lift my eyes to the hills where the temple sits. From where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or 122 says, I was glad to see, or I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or to lift to you, I lift my eyes, O God, you who are enthroned in the heavens. So we're talking about a four or five day journey of of sharing uh, pilgrimage experiences. Did you not talk about past Christmases this week when you were sitting around with family? They're telling stories of past pilgrimages and they're telling the story of their, their history. And they're going to the temple to meet with God and to remember that they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And so I invite you to think about how it is that you prepare to come and, and meet with God in this place each week, or especially this week, as we celebrated the birth of Christ on Tuesday, and, and, and you know that Sunday's coming, and, and, and you begin to anticipate coming to this place. How did you prepare? Advent, the season that we just came through, is, is a complete season of preparation. And that's what I love about the, the Christian calendar and the rhythm of the faith, is that we, we begin to anticipate and look forward to Christmas as we pass through uh, Advent, preparing our hearts to revisit that familiar place, that story of Jesus' birth. If you've ever traveled for holiday, especially Christmas, out of Charlotte, you know what it's like trying to get back home. And so as soon as the gifts are unwrapped and you've eaten all the food in the host's house, you, know, you prepare to return home and, and you start thinking about how quickly you can get out of town and get ahead of the traffic and get back home to settle into your own routine. And so this is... This is where we catch a glimpse of sort of the preteen Jesus. Deciding for himself, he stays behind in Jerusalem where the Jesus or where Mary and Joseph and the family do that thing they do, packing up and gathering everybody and joining the group and heading off for another four or five day trip back home. And so Mary and Joseph, each thinking that Jesus is with the other, they travel a full day before they realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. Have you ever had one of those moments when you realize your child is not with you? Yeah, I heard some yeses, I've seen some heads nod. I asked around, and evidently this is pretty common, <laughs> especially for larger families. You know, once you get past one or two, it gets a little harder to keep up with everybody all the time. And so Jill and I talked about it, and I'm sure we had a story where we left a child at a store or something. Um, but uh, I found your stories to be uh, more interesting. Um, and so there is that moment when we look around and, 
we realize that Christ is not with us. Have you ever headed off in a direction thinking that Jesus was with you only to discover later that He was not? How did you know? What were the signs? What were the indications that you might have left Him behind? How far did you travel down that path away from the temple before you realized that Jesus was not with you? After looking for Jesus for among the relatives and the fellow travelers, Mary and Joseph backtracked to the holy city. Isn't that where we go to find things that we lost or that are missing? We usually try to go back to that place where we last had them. And so they returned to Jerusalem. And after days of searching, three days is not a coincidence, they find him probably in the last place you would expect to find a 12-year-old boy. But see, even in his rebellion, if you want to call it that, Jesus is no ordinary child. He is extraordinary. He was an extraordinary man. He was an extraordinary child. And and it probably took them three days to find him because they were looking in all those places you might expect to find a 12-year-old. The the mall, or or the market, or uh, the arcade, or... Uh, I guess they didn't have pool halls, but those places where a 12-year-old boy might kind of wander around and check things out and look for new uh, discoveries, Uh, maybe the movies or uh, the skating rink. But not Jesus. Jesus was 24-7 in the church with the Sunday school teachers. Certainly not what one might expect. This is a subtle but major point for Luke's narrative. At 12 years old, Jesus has begun this detachment from his earthly family. It would be later in Luke's writing that we hear Jesus say to his disciples, Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And looking at his disciples, he would say, Here are my mother and brothers. Jesus will not be bound by expectations and attachment to earthly relationships. And so from this moment forward, Jesus' actions will, will be somewhat subversive. And I think that's what Luke wants us to see here, that Jesus is already beginning to show his identity and, and who he is. And when mom and dad finally show up, Jesus isn't nearly as concerned about the situation as, as they are. And you can imagine Mary saying in that way that moms do, Jesus, why did you do this to us, you young man? Your father and I have been looking furiously, frantically, all over the place. To which Jesus would say, Mom, 
Didn't you know? Why were you searching? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? In my father's house. Did you catch that? In my father's house. And Joseph is standing there. Mary and Joseph are standing there with Jesus. They're in the temple. And he says, I must be in my father's house. Jesus is revealing his identity. And they missed it. The temple courts were that place where scholars and teachers and and students uh, gathered to exchange ideas. And so outside uh, the the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctum, uh, if you ever saw a picture of the Herod's temple, it's a huge space. And and so that's where the learned uh, hung out, the lawyers, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's where they... They spent time talking about Torah and discussing uh, ideas. And so at the age of 12, still a child, Jesus, had to, Jesus joined their conversation. And the people were amazed at both the questions that he was asking and his answers that he gave to their questions. And, and not because he was telling them things they already knew. He wasn't repeating scripture or Torah. He wasn't telling them what he had been taught in Hebrew school. This isn't your fifth grader reciting multiplication tables. Jesus is amazing them with a knowledge that they have yet to be exposed to. He is saying amazing things. The gospel writers collectively use this Greek word amazed some 30 times. But it has a range of meaning. And and it's from amazement with terror in some places where where they they kicked Jesus out of Nazareth. They asked him to leave politely, or they almost threw him off the hill. They were amazed at what he was doing and what he was saying. Or astonishment, full of perplexity and confusion, bewilderment, if you will. There is something indeed unique going on here, and it is not simply Jesus repeating what they have already taught him or what he has already been taught. It is words that are subversive, words that begin to bump up against the norm, and they don't quite know what to do with it. Jesus' words are to turn the world upside down. He asks questions to create expansion. Right? To capture the imagination. To increase the kingdom of God in ways that had yet to be considered. Later we see Jesus asking questions like, Who by worrying can add a single hour to your life? 
Or who is greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Why do you look at the sawdust in your brother's eye and yet ignore the plank in your own eye? Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? In his own amazing way, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God by asking questions and and telling parables and, and allowing us to come to our own conclusions and to reach that place where he's leading us. He doesn't espouse doctrine or rules, but provokes thought and conversation that lead to discovery. When was the last time Jesus' words astonished you? When was the last time you heard Jesus say something in Scripture that kind of caught you off guard? When was the last time you heard something familiar in a way that made you pause and reconsider the way you have heard it in the past? I think sometimes we make Jesus' words say what we want to hear so that we can feel confident and certain of our understanding. But that, that's the last thing that Jesus' words are intended to do. I've been taught in my seminary training, but if there are two interpretations of a scripture and there is a question as to which one is the most accurate, it's always the harder one. It's always the more difficult one. It's always the one that bumps up against your preconceived notions of who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God will be like. Mary and Joseph's search led them back to the temple. And Jesus insists this should be no surprise. After all, where else would the Son of God be except in his Father's house? And so I want us to spend some time thinking about where we might expect to find Jesus when we discover that we have gotten separated on our journey. That somehow along the way, either we've headed off in the opposite direction or or there's been a fork in the road and we now find ourselves with some distance between us and this uh, Christ child. One of the early scholars, one of the desert fathers of the faith, wrote in response to this passage, If you seek the Son of God, seek first the temple, for it is there the Son of God is found. And I agree with that. But I don't think he means the temple in the way that we typically understand temple. I don't think it's, it's the church, or, or at least it's certainly not the church building. I can tell you I go in the sanctuary during the week when you all are not here, and the Spirit is not the same without you in it. It is, after all, just a building. And so I don't think that Origen is saying that if you just keep going back to the building, you'll find God there, and then you can 
go back out into the world. Although spiritually that probably happens when we gather in Christ's name to worship and study. St. Paul, I think, kind of points us in the right direction when he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which God has given to you? And we usually interpret that scripture to mean, oh, we better take care of our body, right? And we turn it into something about health and fitness. But I I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. Because later on he says, we have this treasure in these jars of clay. The treasure, the divine, the Holy Spirit, God, the presence of God, the image and the likeness of God. They are in us and, and, and our bodies are this, these fragile jars of clay that will soon decay. And so this, this search that I think we're, we're, we're exploring here is the search that leads us inward. Like most of the Christian faith, the search for Jesus is a bit of a paradox. It is an ascent to a holy place, but it is a journey down, inward, deep into that place where the Spirit of God dwells in us, We know from Scripture and the creation story that it is the breath of God breathed into us by the Creator that gives us life. And so it is is the pursuit and, and the journey to find that place where the divine is in us and then to allow it to be lived out through us. It is His Spirit that resides deep within us. One scholar said, or another scholar said, it is the divine Spirit that completes our human nature in in its fullness and in its complexity. It's simple, yet it is complicated. Because when the Christian faith has been reduced to a set of beliefs or practices or right doctrine, and there are no apparent signs of Jesus' presence in our lives, we come to realize that perhaps we have left Him behind. And we are now operating in our humanity. The search for Jesus begins with the recognition of His absence. The search for Jesus is a pilgrimage that lasts a lifetime. And it is on a path that leads beyond the superficiality of our pride and our egos to that place within us, 
where the divine spirit resides. To find Jesus is in to be amazed and to be converted again and again and yet again. And it is a journey worth taking. And so I'll close with this final thought. Meister Eckhart wrote that my work, your work, our work, is to free myself of myself so that Christ may be born in me. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, as we have just come through this season of celebration and revisiting our own festival of Christmas, where we prepare to receive the Christ child once again, I pray that this new year would be the beginning or the continuation of a lifetime pilgrimage where we begin to search frantically for the Christ child within us. That we begin to move ourselves out of the way and die to our own egos and our own desires and our own preferences to open up a way that your spirit may be birthed in us. Lord, that we might live a life that reflects the breath of God into the world, I pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message. As always, you can find out the latest happenings at Harrison on Facebook or on our website at harrisonchurch.org.